This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. All right, so uh, Steve, I've been really excited about talking with you today. I have this, I, I don't really get excited about celebrities. There's no one that I think if they walked into a room, I would, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. This is, this is somebody amazing. I, I'm not really big on that kind of, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, role model, idol worship. However, what I get really excited about are not people who are famous and well-known, but people who just produce really good product, who are just really good at what they do. And my guest today, Steve Patterson, is one of those people. So Steve is an author and a philosopher. And on your blog, Steve, you say, I am a nerd without many practical skills. Uh, I, I'd like to ask you to, to define practical skills because I actually think you have a lot of practical skills. In fact, you're a, you're a very good writer, and I see more demand for good writers than people who can fix a door jam. So why do you say you don't have many practical skills? Well, uh, thank you for that introduction. I appreciate that. Um, I say that because when I graduated from college, uh, I couldn't really do much. I had a lot of ideas, and I was really enthusiastic about the ideas, but just having good ideas isn't an employable skill. So fortunately, over the last few years, I've been able to hone one skill uh, in terms of writing, but just thinking big usually doesn't land you a job. <laughs> now, you said you came out of college without any really employable skill. But remember, Steve, the, the purpose of college is to become a better, well-rounded, enlightened person. Do you feel like that happened? Was it was it all worthwhile, even though you basically had to teach yourself uh, something of, of value to the market? Well, I, I want to be an optimist. And I'll, I'll start with the good parts. I... I learned some essential things while I was in college. Uh, none of those essential things were, were directly taught to me in class. Um, I learned that professional expertise um, that was supposed to be coming from my professors wasn't all it's cracked up to be. I learned that uh, most people aren't really interested in thinking about big ideas, even if they're in college. And these are very valuable things that I learned. Um, it's just not exactly what they were teaching. So uh, this is a good segue into really the three topics I want to cover with you. Um, I always like doing three topics when possible, and I like some kind of alliterative title. So we're going to do credentialism, cryptocurrency, and creative power. So let's start with with credentialism. So you are a philosopher, um, yet... You chose not to go. I know at one point you were considering going to get a, a PhD um, and essentially join the professional philosophy industry, which is more or less defined as academia. Why did you choose to be a philosopher outside of that system? Well, I think there's, there's a couple of answers to that. One was just my experience with the academic system. Um, I really had a romantic vision of academia uh, when I was an undergraduate student, and I kind of had my vision shattered a bit. Um, and after I graduated, I, again, without many employable skills, I've been doing video production for a few years, but that was kind of self-taught, and it's not, it's not going to be a long-term career. I thought, well, 
I, I'm really interested in philosophy, and that's not my major or anything, but that's what I spent a lot of time researching and thinking about. And is it worth it to go back into the world of academia for another three or four years to try to make that my professional career? And I ultimately decided against it because I, I'm not sure if it's like a flaw with me, but I just don't think I could put up with the the culture, um, <laughs> the the establishment, the institutions. You're not a flawed um, individual if you have a low tolerance for faculty meetings arguing about who gets the best parking spot. So that, I, I don't fault you for that. Well, you, you say that, and uh, and I agree, but but I actually think that's like what a considerable amount of uh, the academic life is. Not necessarily arguing about parking spots, but from the conversations that I've had with. Uh, professional academics, and I, I've had a lot of them over the last few years, there was a staggering amount of pettiness and uh, banging your head against the wall and dealing with people with very big egos and very little interest in critical thinking. Um, and and my, my, I, I guess I could summarize it like this. I'm so passionate about philosophy and thinking about these things that I felt like I couldn't spend the amount of time doing what I would want to be doing versus putting up with um, the academic establishment. So I, I, I have slowly been tiptoeing more and more into just producing my own content online, writing for a few organizations and writing for my own website. And so far, it's working pretty well. Um, granted, I have absolutely no formal credentialing and I'm not going to you know, for the rest of my life. And we'll see whether or not that I can, I can get away with it. You know, there's, a, there's a, almost a reverse signaling power that you see emerging little by little in the world today because the the signaling value of a, of a college degree um, I think continues to fall as they're more and more common and it's it's pretty unclear what exactly they, they represent anymore for the most part um, and so you have this thing happening where those who choose make a conscious choice, and they're not just lazy or too stupid for college, but they make a conscious choice to not go and seek that next credential, whether it's a master's degree or a PhD or an even undergraduate, and they have a story to tell about it. That actually sends a louder signal in many sectors. I know in the startup world, a lot of venture capitalists um, are specifically attracted to college dropouts or people who opted out of college because it signals a kind of courage, a contrarian spirit, a willingness to, to think for yourself, to create your own credential. So there's a this emerging world where some of the best and brightest are creating their own signal. In, in other words, not purchasing the signal of a college degree that says, I'm special, they've signaled something even more valuable. Um, do you see yourself in the world of philosophy? Is there any truth to that? Or is this one of those worlds where it's so institutionalized, you're just always going to have a hard time as a non-credentialed outsider? Well, I'd say um, the world is changing. So I think 10 or 20 years ago, it was pretty clear that um, you, you can't be a respected philosopher without some formal credentialing. And uh, I think 20 years in the future, I can very easily envision a world where that's not the case. Uh, we have the tools of the internet and of self-research and self-publication where you can imagine, at least, that ideas are judged based on their accuracy and not based on the credentialing of, this, of the communicator of the ideas. And uh, to your earlier point about um, 
people signaling something by not going and getting further credentialing. I have, uh, it's, it's maybe it's terrible to say, and maybe it's my own bias, but I found over the last few years, I've, I've interacted with a lot of college students, and there seems to be a, the very brightest college students that I've interacted with almost universally have the same experience than I did, hmm. that their peers are uninterested, the professors are uninterested, it's a bunch of busy work, there's not a lot of critical thinking involved. Now, there are some exceptions. I've spoken with a, a couple of people who I, who I really respect who said, man, my college education was great, I had this great professor, and we did all these great things. But I'd say, you know, 75% at least have had the opposite experience. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the venture capitalists are onto something. Where, they, where if if you're the kind of person who's ambitious and passionate and you can't put up with some of the nonsense of the academic system, that's a good thing. Yeah. And it, perhaps it makes you more more employable. I think in terms of philosophy, it's more of an open-ended question right now whether or not you can actually be a respected philosopher talking about really big ideas, you know, with a bachelor's degree in political science from a from a no-name college in upstate New York. I think that's still an open-ended question, but we'll see. So uh, before I get back to philosophy, I, I wanted to agree with your observation about some of the best and brightest. I, I do a lot of interacting with, speaking with uh, college students, as well as high school students who are about to go into college, but, but primarily with college students. And there's, you know, it's not uncommon these days to hear talk about problems with higher ed. Maybe there's a bubble, the, the, the cost is going way up. And if you just read the news, you would think, well, the number one complaint and problem with higher ed is that it costs so damn much that, you know, you're going to pay 50, 60, 100 grand for a degree. That's actually not the number one complaint that I hear from most of the, the best and brightest students. The number one complaint is the quality of the product is really not that great. And the quality of my classmates, my professors, the intellectual environment, um, you know, forget Forget whether it prepares you for a career. Almost everybody agrees that it does very little there unless you're going into a few very specific fields. Um, but just the quality of the, the intellectual environment is probably a greater complaint than uh, the cost for many people. And that's something that I don't think gets gets talked about. Okay, let me segue, um, not segue, stay on the original topic at hand, which is philosophy. So we've been talking about, okay, you're a philosopher. Um, can you be a respected philosopher without, you know, credentials? That obviously leads us to the question, what actually is philosophy? So what is philosophy in your view and what's wrong with what passes as philosophy in sort of the, you know, official view you have to be credentialed? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say, uh, it depends on who you ask. And, um, for that question, there's probably, I'd say in, in, from my perspective, there's two answers. The one is philosophy. You can think of with a capital P and it's just a field of study. So it's a, it's a field of study that incorporates, you know, epistemology and metaphysics and ethics and uh, just not really as a verb, just as a, as a strict noun. And that's what I'm interested in, uh, in doing is philosophy with a lowercase p, which the way I see it is it's, it's understanding the abstract principles that are found in any field that you're studying. So you can understand the philosophy of, uh, you can have a philosophy of science, you can have a philosophy of medicine, you can have a philosophy of, of philosophy, you can have a philosophy of the martial arts, you can have a philosophy as understood as understanding the abstract principles of the thing across the board. 
Um, and so in my, in my particular case, I'm really interested in the philosophy of the mind and understanding the abstract principles of the mind, the philosophy of learning, and the philosophy of epistemology, which is, the, which is understanding the principles of knowledge, of human knowledge. So that's the way kind of that I see it. And uh, it has little relation to what is traditionally considered philosophy with a capital P, which is uh, you have to have some PhD and you're publishing on some very, very minute topic about, you know, linguistic construction in, in the 18th century or something. Um, which almost nobody uh, cares about, uh, and I and I find that when you the deeper you study philosophy as understood as abstract principles, uh, it gets more and more big picture, and the questions get more and more important. So uh, a, an excellent example of this is the question, "What is the meaning of life?" Which which people hear that question and they chuckle and they think, "Oh, what an absurd question that has no answer." You know, it's it's like a if you're familiar with Atlas Shrugged, it's like who is John Galt? It's just this meaningless uh, uh, sentence. And, and when you think about it, just the, the categorical answer to the question, is there a meaning of life? If it's the case there's a meaning of life, that would be very important to know, just that there is one. Yeah. If it's the case that there is no meaning of life, that's also very important to know. So just the resolution of the question itself has implications, regardless of what the actual concrete meaning of life is, if there is one. And yet, it's preposterous to think that uh, you know your average PhD philosopher is going to be dealing with questions about the meaning of life. It's just laughed at and scoffed at. And from my opinion, few things are could be more important than answering that particular question. So um, I, I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs, and early on, I was very surprised by how deeply philosophical many of them were. Certainly, many of the most successful and a part of um, you know the program that I run, the Praxis program, there's a, a philosophy component to it, and a lot of a lot of the participants sort of scratch their heads at that and wonder, okay, this is about learning entrepreneurial skills, how to you know create value in the marketplace. What what role does philosophy have in here? And and I think it's a a very um, easy question to answer. I think it has an integral role, like you said, trying to abstract to those principles, um, being able to ask the really big questions to zoom out from, from the specifics. But I found this weird phenomena where capital P philosophers, they almost look down their nose at what I think philosophy has, has always, uh, been about or where it's always been most valuable, which is how an individual can sort of discover and live the good life. I remember sharing, somebody shared a link, um, from something, it, it might be this, um, it's like the philosophy of life project or something to that effect. And, and it's really, you know, how to improve your life with philosophy and a lot of academic philosophers. And I didn't read the content of the article, so maybe it was bad content, I don't know. Um, but just sort of mocked the very idea of attempting to use philosophy as a way for sort of lay people to uh, get through an average Tuesday, which... I don't know. Something about that really rubs me the wrong way. What's your take on this? You know, is there something? It doesn't mean that everything, everything needs to be applied to daily life today. And there's no value in, you know, thought experiments that I can't directly connect to my business productivity. But at the same time, kind of what's the point if it doesn't connect to um, the individual living a better life at some point? Do you see what I'm saying there? What, what's do. your take on that? I do, and, and uh, 
The answer is something that I've discovered and, and uh, I was kind of scared of when I first discovered it. Those are the best answers that scare you at first. <laughs> Philosophy is inescapable. Hmm. So the decisions that you make in your life are necessarily based on the ideas, both conscious and subconscious, that you have. And if your conscious ideas are inaccurate or vague or fuzzy, then you're essentially acting with, I, wouldn't, I won't say without free will, because that's a, that's a whole other topic, but you're acting based on premises that you've not examined. And this, this is true not just in terms of like, okay, I'm going to go sit in a chair and I have to have some kind of belief that you know, the chair's not going to break and I'm not going to you know, fall on my butt. That's true superficially, but it's also based on very deep principles about, uh, for example, the reality of the uh, perceptions that you're having. So, for example, if it's the case, I'm not saying this is the case, but if it's the case that you recently ingested some psychedelic mushrooms, then even something as, as basic as your navigation through the physical world is going to should fundamentally change. If you don't know that you're on psychedelic drugs, your actions are going to be based on hallucinations. And that's kind of an extreme example, but you can apply that uh, across the board. So uh, if, for example, there's a job that you really would like to have, um, but you don't have a belief that it's possible for you to get that job, then your action is absolutely going to be um, guided by that belief. And it may be the case that that belief is wrong. Maybe if you talk to the entrepreneur that uh, you know, you'd like to be employed by, or maybe if you did some more research and, and got your skills to the point where you, know, you could be an a, uh, entrepreneur in that way, then you could get the job. But your, your beliefs about the circumstance absolutely guide all of your action. And, and this is, there's no exception to this that I have discovered. The, the more that you research philosophy and the more that you research and examine your own ideas about the world, the more you realize, man, there's a lot of stuff here that, that I believe to be true. I've just presupposed that it's true, and it might not be. That reminds me of a, a quote by C.S. Lewis. He said, uh, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason than that bad philosophy does uh, I think that's a, I think it's a really great, really great point. One more question on credentialism, uh, and then I want to talk about cryptocurrency. So we've talked a little bit about some of the the downfalls of being credential obsessed um, and looking at kind of the the trappings um, or the official labels rather than the the quality or the content. Um, what's the role? What's the value? of credentials. I mean, they're there for a reason. They're obviously doing something of value. They are providing a sort of quality assurance, at least in theory. Um, where do you see, you know, you, you can't just, I wouldn't think say all credentials are bad and everyone should be judged on the value of their work. There's too much information at play. So we need shortcuts. We need ways to determine, you know, who is and isn't bad. Maybe that's a, a Yelp review. Um, but in the, in the world of, you know, in the intellectual world, what, what would you say would be a well-functioning credential system? It's a very good question. And um, I would say there is a place for credentialing, certainly. And there's a place for recognition of formal expertise. I think it's, it's easy to point out where that's the case. So um, like in, in some fields in natural sciences, 
for example, it makes sense that if you have a lot of actual concrete experience using laboratory equipment, that you would be able to signal that not based on, you know, a bunch of stuff that you've written and try to make the case that, oh, actually, I know how to use this stuff, just based on your formal credential. You have some, you know, appropriate badge that says you know how to use particular lab equipment or whatnot. As you get further and further into the softer sciences and as you get drift closer and closer to philosophy, where the only kind of necessary equipment you need is a functioning mind and skepticism and you know, critical thinking skills, I think it becomes very difficult to have a reliable, formalized credentialing system. I think one of the beautiful things about like the decentralization of knowledge on the internet is that people who are naturally critical thinkers have an outlet for their writing and have an outlet for other individuals who are critical thinkers to read their writing. So I'm not sure if formal credentialing, like in philosophy in particular, is something that will even exist in the future. I can really envision a scenario where that's not the case just because it's unnecessary. And But, but that being said, like medical doctors and so on, you can imagine that, yeah, you need some kind of system to discern the good ones from the bad ones, not based on some abstract thing that they wrote. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I like to ask myself from time to time, who are the true philosophers of our age? Um, if you completely remove the the professional, you know, capital P philosophers, or you don't ask questions about who receives their paycheck for writing about philosophy, but just who is thinking up uh, presenting the most interesting or original or challenging ideas in a way that really impacts the thought of the world. You know, you think of Aristotle, right? He's just called the philosopher. If he were alive today, would he be uh, at some university or would he be sort of just a public intellectual? I think some of the philosophers today, um, you know, aren't in academia at all. I would say even a guy like uh, Peter Thiel yeah. is is a philosopher today. He's, he's challenging a lot of uh, people's thoughts. He's um, presenting a lot of interesting ideas, forcing people to think in new ways. Um, so I think that uh, that's a really interesting question worth sort of contemplating. Who, who are the philosophers today? And, and uh, you know, those who have a really broad influence and are actually shaping the way people think um, might be more deserving of the title than those who have a a PhD. I think uh, I think that's an excellent thought experiment. And and as to Aristotle, you know, obviously we can't we we can't do anything but hypothesize. But I could imagine that Aristotle would have nothing to do with the academic establishment. That the man was too busy creating, too busy thinking, uh, too busy philosophizing about the world to you know to put up with you know who gets the parking space. I can imagine that for sure. <laughs> So um, cryptocurrency, totally, totally new topic, but hopefully at the end we'll tie these together uh, in some labored way and pretend like there was a perfect flow from the, from the beginning. Um, you wrote a book, a, a phenomenal book on Bitcoin. Uh, what's the big deal about Bitcoin? And uh, first, just thank you for writing it. It's excellent. Um, I've read a lot of articles, watched little videos, different things on Bitcoin and I never really got it, uh, or, or, or rather, I never got all the elements of, of what Bitcoin, the blockchain and Bitcoin, um, you know, both as a lowercase and uppercase sort of different things, what it was until I read your book. So, so thank you. But what prompted you to 
write a book on Bitcoin? Um, well, actually, I was asked by an old friend for some financial advice, and uh, I I gave the kind of uh, industry standard. You know, if you're looking to protect your wealth, gold and silver is probably a good place. And I said, uh, you know, if you if you are willing to tolerate a bit more risk, then uh, there's this new Bitcoin thing that I'm really interested in. My my wife's involved in the space. My brother's involved in the space, um, and it's potentially very promising technology, but it's a bit of a gamble. I said, if you're interested, I'll share some more resources with you. And she said, yeah, yeah, I'm interested, send it along. And so uh, I went online and tried to find introductory um, Bitcoin material, and there's not a lot of great stuff out there. And there, there may be more so now, but at the time, this was maybe uh, eight, eight months ago, something like that. Uh, there, there was a lot of libertarian slanted stuff, which is great. It just wasn't really applicable in this circumstance. And there's a lot of really technical stuff. Um, but there was kind of nothing that was just explained what is the big deal about Bitcoin. So I figured, well, heck, I'm just going to write my own book on the topic. And um, so that's why I did it. It was actually because somebody asked me about financial advice. So someone with a political science major, a lifelong passion for philosophy, uh, was it difficult to get up to speed on this pretty technical topic? Uh well, at the time when I started writing, no, uh, just because I'd been in, I'd been following the Bitcoin space for a couple of years. I actually, funny story, um, I found out about Bitcoin, gosh, I think it was back in 2010 or 2011. This was only a year or two after the technology was created. And the price of a Bitcoin was under a dollar. And uh, I, I didn't buy any. I tried to mine some, um, and which is the, the process of creating Bitcoin. You uh, I, I tried to do that, but it was too hard for me. I couldn't make it work. And I was like, oh, screw this. And I kind of forgot about it for a year. And I, I watched the price go up from less than a dollar to $10. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. I wish I bought some Bitcoin. And then <laughs> some, back, Somebody offered to give me uh, around that time, oh, you should open up in a wallet and I'll I'll just throw you some Bitcoin. I'll give you like five or 10 Bitcoin. Yeah. Oh, and I was like, oh, I just don't have the time to set up a wallet. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. And uh, my, so I watched it go down and then my wife, uh, she went to um, uh, uh, economics conference in Alabama and a lot of people were interested in Bitcoin. And I had already gone the, see, seen the price go from $10 down to like $1. And then at the time it was back up around 10 or $12. And she was like, you know, Steve, we should probably pick up some Bitcoin. It looks like there's a lot of potential there. And I was like, no, no, no. I've, I've seen it go below a dollar. It's in a bubble. Don't worry about it. You know, we'll pick some up uh, once it goes back down. And then now, you know, it's at uh, $250. It went over $1,000. So I missed out uh, big time. But I've been involved in this. But I've been watching this space for a number of years. So the actual the actual sitting down and writing didn't involve that much research. Um, there were a few technical parts which I needed to make sure I, I had right. And I ran it by a few people that are or have a deeper technical understanding of Bitcoin. But I, I was already kind of up to speed on the on the basic concepts. Okay, so um, for those who might not know, give us your easiest, shortest explanation of what Bitcoin is and why people um, might want to care about it. So uh, Bitcoin is this is this is the way that I've been explaining it to uh, people who are unfamiliar. Uh, Bitcoin is an ambiguous word because uh, it means different things in different contexts, and one of the reasons. Probably the main reason that it confuses a lot of people is because 
this is an ambiguous word. Um, most people, when they're talking about Bitcoin, they're talking about a digital currency. It's just a, a currency like any other that's traded online for goods and services. And it has a number of really unique properties. Um, but the currency is only one part of a payment system that was created online. And the entire payment system is also unfortunately called Bitcoin with a capital B. And the payment system, there, it has three parts. First part is the currency. Second part is a piece of software that's run on your computer. And then the last part, the most important part, is an online ledger system. Um, and I won't go into to too great detail about that, but the way that those three things interact um, is in terms of computer science um, and in terms of economics, potentially unprecedented. And um, if you're a libertarian, then it has a lot of uh, really big implications for um, the decentralization of money and kind of the private creation of money, which is a lot of libertarians like. And even if you're not a libertarian, there's a lot of really cool features, just technologically speaking, that Bitcoin allows for. That's the nutshell. Hmm. So I want to ask you to, to speculate and, you know, dream up grand visions of what Bitcoin will become. But a little more concretely, who in your mind is doing the most interesting things with this technology right now? Oh, man, that's a difficult question. Um, I think so. I, there's there's two groups that I would say I'm most excited about in the Bitcoin space. One is uh, uh, in which my brother's involved because he's also very passionate, uh, libertarian, smart guy, and he's also caught on fire about Bitcoin. It's called Open Bazaar. And what it is is a decentralized marketplace online that can't be shut down that uses Bitcoin. So it's not meant for a bunch of you know illicit stuff like the Silk Road and whatnot. It's essentially, when I, when I talked to him, he said, look, Steve, we are creating a free market. And it hit me and I was like, whoa, this is a huge deal. So essentially it's like, it's like a mixture of eBay and BitTorrent to create this, this way that you can have a, a, a free market that's buttery smooth, that, that has no centralized location and can't be taken down, which I think the potential for that is absolutely world changing. Um, and the other group, uh, and I might get slapped, uh, slapped on the wrist for saying this. The other group is called Blockstream. And uh, it's a group that's got a lot of like funding and stuff. But there's this idea in the Bitcoin world, and I, I, I'll, really, I'll really simplify this. There's this idea in the Bitcoin world of creating what's called side chains. In other words, creating kind of apps in the Bitcoin economy that each app can do a different thing, can serve a different function. And... The idea would be to use Bitcoin, the currency, as kind of a reserve, the reserve currency for all these different apps. And the potential for the things that you can do with these side chains is absolutely mind-blowing. Um, if anybody's interested, just Google sidechains Bitcoin, and you'll see it's, it's integrating digital technology with a physical world. And um, I'll just give you one example, just which I think is cool, and it popped in my head, is uh, there has never been a micropayment um, uh, technology in existence which allows for easy payments of like a penny or less than a penny. And you think, well, what, what, could, what could the use case be that you would ever need to pay for something less than a penny? <laughs> um, and the potential is enormous online in particular because 
the way that content creation works online and people trying to get paid for the content they produce, it's like advertisements or it's subscriptions and it's really clunky. Mm. Um, but if you could have a payment system where you visit a website and it draws half a penny uh, from automatically from your account behind the scenes, um, then you, you don't need advertisements. Uh, most people are going to pay, you know, half a penny or a penny or whatever it is. You could set the, set the price for reading that article, and then you actually would literally get paid for the views and the oh, uh, wow. traffic that you drive. I mean, I could than, even see a dynamic marketplace developing where, if you have a lot of a lot of rich content, let's say that takes up a lot of bandwidth, certain times a day. Uh, if you want to yeah. go visit that website, it's going to cost you, you know, five cents. Whereas if you do it at two in the morning, you can get it for, you know, 0 0.01 cent or something and almost to, to regulate and even out the flow of, exactly. of internet traffic. Yeah. Wow. Wow. There's load a lot pricing. of implications. Yeah. yeah. So you're talking about peak load pricing for website traffic. You know, I mean, that's like, it's, it's just, it's, I never thought about that, but that's an excellent idea. Um, so uh, open bizarre. Um, right. And maybe you don't feel comfortable giving your expertise on that. I might have to, to bring your brother on uh, another time, but mm -hmm. I'm having a hard time understanding it from how you described it. So kind of like eBay, but without one central, right? The, the value add that eBay right. brings is that they are a central hub or Craigslist right. Right. where buyers and sellers come together and eBay is verifying the identities and processing the payments. Um, from my understanding, the way the blockchain works, you, you you know, it's trustless. So you can, it's, it's basically impossible to forge your identity or to fake a, a payment or, a, you know, like you could with a, a phony credit card or something. So mm -hmm. I get that element of it, but what is the, if there's no central, central body that could be sort of taken down or, or, you know, that could go out of business and the whole thing falls apart. What is Open Bazaar itself? Where where is the the platform on which parties interact? It's a, it's a piece of software. So uh, in the same way that Bitcoin and the blockchain doesn't really reside in any particular place, it's on everybody's computer who's connected to the network. That's the same thing with um, uh, Open Bazaar. So and it's the same thing with BitTorrent too. If you think about BitTorrent um, or any torrent client is. You run it on your computer, and then it connects you to a network of other computers. Um, and in you know BitTorrent's case, you can download files. And in um, OpenBazaar's case, it connects you to um, merchants that can set up a store in this uh, in this platform. And then you can connect directly peer to peer to their store. So it connects buyer and seller directly without any middleman okay. through the software. That's pretty. That's pretty amazing. There's a lot of there's a lot of really cool uh, implications in there. I mean, I, I I'm one of these people that I guess I don't I don't have any problem with the idea of uh, middlemen in and of itself. I don't think there's anything necessarily negative about it when it's when the market produces them as a way sure. to to bring down transaction costs. Um, but their mere existence is a reflection that they came about because transaction costs were high, and if you can reduce those. Um, obviously there, there are savings. I, I don't think there's anything necessarily nefarious about it. Um, but I will say as a, as a, you know, huge skeptic of anything government does when you have those sort of one source, one stop, large entities, corporations that have a lot of transactions going in on both sides, their ability and incentive to gain, uh, government favors, protections to abuse, 
um, you know, the use of coercive fa- force is so much greater than a bunch of decentralized individual actors and vice versa. If the government wants to go after and shut down or slap an antitrust suit on a major corporation, um, you know, and it, it basically extort them, they can, whereas these de- decentralized systems can't. So there's, there's something truly beautiful about it. That's right. And I would definitely suggest, um, uh, talking to him because he'll he'll get you really excited about the project. But the the benefits are many fold. I mean, the one is just purely economic that it, it reduces transaction costs. But the it's also I mean, you know, we we can't predict the future. But if you try to theorize as a libertarian, what would happen in countries around the globe that have strict economic regulations if you could essentially bypass all economic regulation? and have people in a marketplace trade directly with one another and it's impossible for the government to take down any central server um you know that that is massive that's massive for human well-being not just in terms of value creation um but in terms of freedom it's a it's a huge um uh, benefit for the cause of freedom potentially and i I don't want to they're still working on it they're still developing and it's a good product right now but they're still they're still uh, in process of working on it. But the potential, I literally think, is world changing for good reason. Well, just wait till we combine it with, you know, 3D printing. Now the, the guy yeah. who wants to run his hot dog, bacon wrapped hot dog stand in California <laughs> and can't get any licenses. He can just he can just send me the recipe directly and it will print out on my 3D printer and I'll have a 3D printed uh, bacon wrapped hot dog. Well, that does sound delicious. And uh, th- th- this it seems to be the right now we're kind of in the midst of this transition towards decentralized systems. So I, I don't think it's unreasonable. I don't know about the the hot dog example, but it's not it's not completely unreasonable. <laughs> don't ruin think. my dream. <laughs> but so, hey, it's an it's an entrepreneurial opportunity right that's there right. to make it work. Yes. So but, so this is a good bridge to connect these. This this decentralization that's happening on to connect yeah. The two topics we've talked about, you being an independent intellectual operating outside of uh, a system that at one time was really an indispensable if you wanted to make any kind of career out of being a, an in- intellectual, a writer, a thinker. You know, you have to get the publishing deal from the one publishing house. You have to get the tenured position from the university, et cetera. Um, so in your life, you're kind of living this out, being being a, a, an independent operator creating your product, your value. And Bitcoin is kind of in in the blockchain, a platform that makes that easier and easier and makes it harder and harder for these centralized systems to sustain themselves. So in this new world, I think a new skill set and certainly a new mindset is required for individuals if they really want to succeed. It's no longer sufficient to ride the conveyor belts and gain standard skills and, you know, um, knowledge that's sort of standard across the board. And and really what you gain in most of the educational structure is, um, learning how to just obey rules and and do what you're told. Um, machines and software can do those things better and better. The uniquely human is that creative entrepreneurial, you know, sort of innovative thinking. And I think the ability to see yourself as your own company, as your own node in a network, if you will, um, and to know how to operate as the driving force, the creative force in your own life is more and more important, but it seems to be something that really stresses and scares people. Um, and there's a, there's a big challenge there. So 
what do you think holds people back from realizing their creative power and kind of taking advantage of the opportunities in this increasingly decentralized world? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one, I would say I don't think we're quite at the place where uh, the conveyor belt doesn't work. I think you can get away with that. I think people do get away with that. I think we're just at the very end of that cycle. So like 20 years from now, you probably won't be able to. But right now, I think you can. Um, in terms of people being you know, scared of this idea, I'm quite sympathetic. I mean, it, you know, it's it's not set in stone by any stretch of the imagination. So, so you this, had you've had moments of uh, a little bit of stress and, and fear as you've embarked on your quest to, to be an independent uh, thinker and writer. All the time, all the time, and it's something that I'm I have to constantly evaluate because you know the process is slow, and I I, I need to grow my audience and I need to grow the supporters of the work that I'm doing actively, otherwise it's not going to work. So it's still an open-ended question, definitely. And I don't know, you know, going forward as an entrepreneur, I don't know if, how should I best spend my writing time? Should it be writing for my blog? Should it be writing books? Should it be writing for organizations? These are all things that I don't know the answer for. I'm, I'm trying to figure them out. Um, and I think for other people, it's reasonable. It's very reasonable to be scared <laughs> by this new... Uh, this kind of new turbulent uh, change in the marketplace. And any advice that I would give would, would be, one, uh, do your research, because it, it might be the case that, for example, uh, my, my wife is a good example. She got her undergrad degree in biology, and she loves working in the lab. That's her thing. She hasn't been able to do that recently, but she really enjoys working in the lab. Well, if that's something she wants to do in the long run, she probably needs to go back to school, and she probably needs to get this. She probably can't be a self-studied uh, lab technician. Yeah, most of the labs are at universities. Exactly. So so in that case, I think it would be, right now at least, a mistake to try to apply the, the new decentralization, you know, self-studied uh, movement to, to that particular example. But if, if people are involved in, you know, the world of ideas, then I think this, this uh, there's probably two areas, I think, which are most... Um, uh, affected maybe by this decentralization right now. The one is in the world of ideas, where I think, uh, given the nature of the product, it's fairly easy to, if you consistently put a good product out there, to have some measure of success. Just because there's like, uh, my book was published, self-published on Amazon's platform, which, you know, five years ago, self-publishing was a big, uh, a big no-no and an embarrassment, but now it's awesome. Like, the product looks good. The book looks great. It, I'm very pleased with how it all turned out. And, and that's the, a lot of publishers are, or a lot of writers are doing self-publishing because that's the way it's working. <clears throat> um, but the other area, if it's not necessarily in idea creation, is in uh, new startups. I think Peter Thiel is a great example because, he, you know, he literally will pay people not to go to college, to, to be the independent intellectual and entrepreneur and I think he's had pretty good success so far. So if somebody wants to, to I mean, of, of course, I'm, I'm telling you this, Isaac. I mean, this is what your whole Praxis thing is about. Um, but for those individuals that just say, hey, screw it, I'm going to try to do my own thing. I think getting into like a, try to get into a tech startup or a new, a young company that's not already fixed in bureaucracy and this is the way things have to work. I think that is probably the best, the best option to go. You know, you, you mentioned something interesting um, talking about your wife. And I think the, the 
the thing that I noticed there is if she wants to, you know, go back into the, the, the world, go back into the lab, you know, so to speak, um, she knows there's a certain set of steps she has to take. And in that case, going the sort of official, um, you know, institutional route would make perfect sense for her. And the key though, is she knows herself well enough that, or ho hopefully, right. That she'll know, do I really want to do this? And what I find is that the thing people know the least about is not what jobs are valuable. It's not, where's the market going? What should I focus on? It's not a certain body of knowledge. The thing people know the least about is themselves. Right. And when you really start to ask questions about who you are, what you bring to the table, where are you in your zone? That doesn't mean where are you not challenged. It means the opposite. Where are you in that sweet spot of challenged uh, and productive, able to do things that are enjoyable, but also hard and letting that be the thing that determines whether and to what extent you go off as an independent creator, whether an entrepreneur or intellectual, or whether you join a, a larger existing business or you go the, the academic route uh, through, you know, college, you know, people sometimes ask it like, are you anti-college? And to me, it's just an absurd question. It's, it's like, are you anti, you know, blue ranch house? Like, I don't know. I mean, that is, you can't answer that for society. What, what I want is people to know themselves well enough to say, what are some goals that I have or some, you know, some things that I want to experience so I can either pursue them whole, you know, whole hog or eliminate them from the list. Cause I realize I don't like them and build your path around that and use the tools around you, whether that's, um, you know, the internet to publish things or whether that's college to go get a, a certain specialized degree. But those are all tools. Those aren't going to be the thing that helps you get to know yourself. You've got to do that work, you know, first before you, before you go out there. So, um, didn't mean to get on my little soapbox well, there, but that, that was excellent. And what I would, I would, I would name everything that that entire uh, recipe that you just gave, I would call that philosophy. Hmm. Um, when you're saying people need to know themselves, they need to understand, I would say how their mind functions, they need to understand their own value systems and why they believe what they believe. Maybe it's the case that right now, they value, uh, you know, material wealth. And that's hmm. why well, they want to go into a startup is to make a lot of money. That's great. Have you thought about it? Yeah. It might be the case that material wealth is not going to bring you your satisfaction, self-satisfaction, and maybe you need a, a different value scale. In, in other words, I completely agree with everything you say, and I just think you need to sit on your butt and think about it. Be sincere with yourself and, and accept the, the uncertainty that comes when you start applying these tools of critical thinking to yourself and, uh, and sort it out that way before, before you take any of the next steps. See, I told you all these topics would tie together somehow, <laughs> even if, you know, yeah, I, I think that's, that's one of the, one of the craziest things is let's say you do the, the really challenging work of, of getting to know yourself and discover kind of what your true preferences, uh, to use an economics term are, what, what are the things that you value and that make you feel fulfilled? Um, there's a second part that's really hard and that's accepting that and being okay with it and not feeling guilty for it. I know a lot of people who have very different preferences, let's say in regards to uh, leisure, for example. Um, some people aren't very happy with a lot of leisure and they feel like they always want to be doing some kind of activity. And for them, a fulfilling life is having a lot of interesting things to do at all times, uh, whether that's in a workplace or a combination of, you know, hobbies, et cetera. Um, for others, it's 
having a maximum amount of leisure time, even if it means the work that they do, they don't really care about uh, as long as they can earn enough money to have a, a lot of time um, that's essentially, you know, free to, to, to roam, to read, to think, whatever it might be. Um, and the, the weird thing is I know people who I think have a, for example, leisure time, a really high preference for leisure time and have done a successful job earning a lot of it in their life, but they always have, it's like they're a little bit double-minded about it. They're a little bit ashamed and mm -hmm. they kind of feel guilty for it because they know some other people that are working all the time or vice versa. The person who right. just loves working all the time, but they're made to feel guilty that, oh, you need to take a vacation or whatever. And then they start to feel guilty. Like once right. you realize what your preferences are, which is really hard to be honest with yourself yeah, yeah. and then to like, let yourself be that person uh, and not feel bad about it and not be sort of of a divided mind. I think, I think that's really a challenge, an ongoing challenge. Yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I, that, I wanted to chime in, but you, uh, you, you said it yourself. This is really hard. And this is one thing to talk about it on an abstract <laughs> level and say, yeah, this is great. And this is exciting. This is really hard stuff that, that can take a lot of trial and error. I mean, people can, can live for a long time and not necessarily even discover what makes them passionate, not because they're a bad person or not because they haven't thought about it or they're not smart, just because it's not something that's self-evident. You know, these things take a lot of work. And I've met a lot of people who, uh, talking about the shame thing, who are kind of ashamed that they don't, they're not passionate about something. Or if they are, you know, deep down, they don't even know what it is. Well, that's fine. Yeah. The, the, the important part is to be on the track of discovering what that is and constantly evaluating you know, the, the, the abstract principles constantly questioning and thinking, okay, is, is this the thing that I want to be doing? And what would it look like if I stumbled across the thing that I want to be doing? What, what does the, what is even the methodology going about discovering these, uh, the, the career path that I want to take? And, and it's, and I hope that people are, understand very clearly it's not an easy question. I'm very fortunate, and I'm aware that I'm fortunate based on the, co the conversations I've had with people. It's been pretty clear for a long time that like, this is what I need to be doing. I'm, I'm set. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know the details, but I'm going to be creating these ideas. And I'm, I'm very lucky that it's clear to me. But if, you're, if it's not clear to you, don't feel bad about it because it's, it's very difficult to discover. There's... There's a lot of myths that play in at, at all points of this process. You know, if you set about to discover what you're passionate about, you're almost scared. What if I discover what I'm really passionate about is making films and I don't know anything about it. I'm out of that. Like that would be really scary because then yeah. I either have to admit I'm not willing to do the work it takes to do what I'm passionate about or I have to go and try this thing, which is really scary. Right. Um, but what's even scarier. So, so here's the myth. The myth is. Once I discover, let's say it's making films, that's my passion. Well, I can't do that unless I have, let's say, a whole bunch of money to go make my, my first film. And you imagine, the myth is that a bunch of money would make it no longer scary to pursue that passion. The, the reality is there's nothing that would enhance the scariness more than getting a bunch of money. If someone came to you and said, okay, you exactly. say you're passionate about it, you've got this great business plan, this screenplay, you say that if you had the money, you'd be in the zone and this would be successful. Here's the money. And then right. it's like, oh my gosh, now it's really scary because you have to produce. So I think it's it's instructive to kind of not tell yourself, well, it would be less scary if only I achieved X. Because it, it, I think it, the, the stakes in a way almost only go up. And, and that's a good thing because we're not really happy if we're not challenged in, in some way. Right. I completely agree with you. I think that's, uh, I, I think, I see that all the time. 
um, and not just career-wise, but in terms of, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, just pick on people or anything, but you see all the time that rather than really engaging um, what people are, are excited about or whatever they're doing, they kind of sit on their hands and say, well, if all, if all these other uh, um, things lined up in my life, if I had the money and if I had, if I could have this car and if I could, if I could have this relationship, people gave me the benefit of the doubt and people did this, then I would be happy. And it's almost an excuse not to do anything. And I see that all the time. And I've, I've been subject to that myself, especially in terms of writing. It's like, well, gosh, I, I really think that I could produce all these great ideas. And I really think these ideas are, are accurate. But how am I supposed to do it if I can't get any money and I can't, I can't pay the bills? Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I have a wonderful wife right now that also thinks that these ideas are good. And she's paying the majority of the bills while <laughs> we're taking this ridiculous gamble and thinking, I'm going to try to do this outside of the system. So, thank you, Julia. Thank you, Julia. So I'm gonna I'm gonna end with uh, a final question. I'm always interested in people that produce good stuff, uh, people who are you know creative, productive, high quality. I'm always curious, just sort of their daily work habits and writing in particular. I've noticed. Um, I don't know if you have a sp- specific schedule, but you write relatively infrequently on your blog, but you always come out with a piece that's that's rather long and well thought out. Um, I have a daily writing, a daily blogging practice. So a lot of times it's just a couple paragraphs of, you know, this, that, or the other thing. Um, I'm curious, your, your habits, your methods, when it comes to writing, what, you know, how do you structure it? How do you make yourself sit down and write a book or write your blog post? What are your what are your sort of productivity tips? Isaac, I could talk your ear off about this. I find this topic so exciting because I've struggled with it so much, and I'm I think I'm starting to find what what makes me tick in terms of uh, writing. So uh, I'm I'm actually still tweaking, and I'm trying to find the right balance here because I have apparently I have this very bad habit or, or um, bias towards writing late at night. Um, and, it, and it's a trouble for Julia and I because, you know, she comes home from a long day and we talk and then I, when I start getting in the zone is like 10 o'clock at night. And from like 10 to 3 in the morning, <laughs> man, I can write like 3,000 words. <laughs> but, and I'm trying to change that. Um, but what I found in, in regards to length is I was not expecting when I started this blog uh, that I was going to have these monster pieces. I wrote a piece on quantum physics that was like 4,500 words long. I was like, what the heck? We'll, we'll have wrote- to talk about that piece another time because you kind of rain on my parade. I, what the bleep do we know was like such a great mind-bending movie, and now you make me feel like an idiot for liking it. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a okay, second. Okay, we, we do need to talk. Yeah, we do need to talk about that. But um, what I found when I started getting into it, uh, and I just started writing stuff, it was like, well, I really want to make coherent, full thoughts, regardless of the length. And I didn't think they were going to be that long, but consistently they've been long pieces. And I, and I was expecting that I wasn't going to get much traffic because who wants to read some schmuck's 4,500 word long piece on quantum physics? But what I found is actually really exciting. And it's the really long pieces that, that take a long time to write and do it. I put a lot of effort into just because I want to get them, you know, I want to brain dump them and get them over with. Those have done really well. Um, I had that that piece in particular was number one on some Reddit subreddits. I got like fifteen thousand views in the first day. Wow. It was it was posted all over the place, and I was like, "What the heck?" I was not expecting that. 
at all. And it's very encouraging. Right. I mean, and for a guy, I'm, I'm not insulting you for a guy who's not, you know, you didn't do something else to become a brand name first. You're not a guy that has a household name right. uh, to get 15,000 hits in a day, just purely based on the content itself. Um, that's phenomenal. I, I thought so too. Uh, I, I was I was floored, and I, I after that I wrote another uh, piece on postmodernism that also got over ten thousand. I was like, "Well, crap! This is so." So now I'm pretty set um, on posting longer pieces, uh, just because it's more natural for me. I feel like I can make a complete thought, and apparently they're 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 well received. And I'll I'll say this um, just in terms of the actual writing process. Um, maybe six months ago, no, maybe a little bit longer than that, maybe almost a year ago now, um, Michael Malice, who's an author and a, and a, uh, a libertarian and funny guy, he posted a, an article he wrote, I don't even know what the website was for, maybe Thought Catalog, and it was like tips for writing. And occasionally I click stuff like that and try to get good ideas. And he had advice, which scared me at the beginning. I thought, this can't be right. And then I tried it. I'm like, oh my gosh. I have been wasting so much time. This is the way to do it, at least for me. And I think it is for a lot of people. And I don't even remember most of the article, but the number one thing, he said, this is this is the thing that you got to do. It don't write and edit at the same time. <laughs> that if, and so for me, the way I had another blog that you know I occasionally uh, wrote stuff, and and for me, the writing process was you write a paragraph and then you revise the paragraph. Or you write a sentence and you keep revising, oh, wow. revising, revising, and you yeah. don't get anywhere. And then you find three paragraphs later, you have a different kind of tone, and then you got to revise, and it's it's very clunky, and it takes a really long time. Are, are you a perfectionist? I am a perfectionist, very much, and I it, it, it I'm still working on the cringe factor of reading my first drafts because I don't <laughs> edit on the first draft, and it's pain. It's like embarrassingly bad, but I realize now that I have to do it. And when you just brain dump and you don't edit, or very very minimal editing. And you just write the idea and get all of it out, get all of the concepts in whatever way they come out on the paper. And it might be 2,000 words of crap. You put it aside, and then the next day or another session, then you view it as uh, editing. That Your session is not to make a bunch of additional content. It's to edit. And oh my gosh, my writing, the quality of my writing has gone way, way up. The, the amount of my writing has gone way up. I, would, I could not more strongly recommend that to anybody. I am endlessly fascinated by writing in particular because I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with it, the different ways people approach it. I, I, have, I, I have no problem just writing something without editing it. I'm not a details person. I'm a really impatient, like action-oriented person. My problem is forcing myself to go back and edit it one or two, three times and to do it slowly. So like, it's really common for me to post something and have somebody tell me there's a typo and then go back and change it the next day because I just didn't take enough time. Um, but, but it's interesting because I, I would love all of my friends and colleagues who are writing these longer pieces are getting a lot more traction than, you know, me, I guess, or those who are doing just more, just everyday short things. Not, not always, but I think you're seeing a, a, a real move. Um, I don't know if it's a real move. Maybe, maybe there's no trend, but there's a lot of value in those longer pieces that have, that are really rich with content. And I would like to do that. I really struggle. It's like, it's like a new year's resolution that says I'm going to run 10 miles, you know, three days a week and, you know, enter a powerlifting competition. It's, it's too much. It's overwhelming. So it's easier to not do anything if you can't keep up. And so I found that if I don't make myself write every day, 
I will say, yeah, I'm going to sit down once a week and I'll write something that's like a book and it's going to be like, you know, 5,000 words, 10,000 words or more. And that's inconvenient. It's unrealistic. I'm not feeling it. My schedule is really hard with my kids and family and in the company I'm running. And so I do nothing. And so I found like to write every day is the only way that I can keep writing. But now I'm in this weird rut where that's all I know how to do is crank out, you know, 500 to 1500 <laughs> words. And I don't know how to make myself write something longer. So I need to learn from from people like you. Well, no, that's funny. I need to learn from people like you because I have I have the same I actually struggle with it. Your worry is is as a reality that I'm having is when I get going and I you know it's ten o'clock at night and I start writing a piece. I have this problem where I gotta finish it, and mm. it takes it, it takes a you know it'll take four hours or whatever more to just dump the ideas. And so I also too have found myself well you know maybe I'll do it tomorrow night or something just because I know it's gonna take so long because I have a very difficult time breaking up my my work habits. So I think we need a, we need a mix somewhere between the two of us. Absolutely. A great, great article related to this topic. Um, one of my favorites by Paul Graham, it's the, uh, the manager's schedule versus the maker's schedule. Um, and oftentimes the people we interact with all day are primarily running on a manager's schedule, uh, which a 15 minute phone call is not a big deal, but if you're a maker, you need four hour chunks of time um, to do things. And it's really hard when you're trying to interact with people who are who are used to a lot of, you know, short, short interruptions. Um, Steve, it has been wonderful talking with you. Uh, you can check out Steve's stuff at steve-patterson.com. Uh, his book, What's the Big Deal About Bitcoin, is available in ebook format, in paperback, and also audiobook on Amazon. Uh, I highly encourage you to, to go read some of his stuff, keep up with his articles. And uh, Steve, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Isaac. It's been great talking to you. <laughs>